Really good to see all of you here this morning. And if you want to find your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 16. We have been systematically making our way through this gospel, and we are at the final message, final chapter. We've made it, okay? You can pick up your medals as you walk out the door here this morning here. You know, um, this is, I, I want you to know I've, I've loved the study of the gospel of Mark. It has been so enriching for my own personal life. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about, like, the birth of children. Uh, we've had four children, and, you know, when a child is born, uh, one of the things that parents, doctors, nurses, they're all very interested that the baby is thriving, right? And they're looking to make sure, like, the, their steady breathing, the heartbeat, they're looking at their, their uh, skin, making sure that that's right. Uh, they're seeing if they're responsive, that they can hear. Uh, they're doing everything they can to make sure that the baby is eating correctly, the baby can sleep, baby's functioning and awake. I mean, all of this is in tune because they want the baby thriving. And that makes sense. And I want you to know that God wants his children thriving. And that is one of the big reasons why God has given us the gospel of Mark. It's so that we would know the absolute love of God. We would live in the love of Christ. And that by reading this book, the gospel of Mark would leave its mark on his people and that we would be a people that thrives. This book begins, verse 1, chapter 1, remember? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see the gospel taking its very first step, its proclamation, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And for 15 chapters, guess what? We have seen Christ the King, his kingdom being manifest, him beginning to reign and rule in the lives of his people. And that's what we see all the way up until we come to chapter 16 with the climactic event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 16 is the continuation of the gospel. Mark 1.1 is the beginning. Mark 16 is the continuation. And we have to ask ourselves, what does it really look like to thrive as kingdom citizens? How does faith in Christ flourish? If you're a Christian today, you absolutely want to know, what does it look like for my faith to be on fire, for me to move forward with strength, vitality, a vibrancy? If you want to know the answers to that question, why, you're going to find it in Mark chapter 16. And the first the priority that you need to have, if you're going to have a faith that is thriving, is that you need to, be grow, to grow in knowing the significance of Christ's resurrection. We took a look at it last week. In fact, we spent our entire time in verses 1 through 8. But let me give you the scriptural basis for us knowing that the resurrection of Christ indeed happened. The first is the testimony of the empty tomb. So he says, verse 1, Now when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, They saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. 
And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. First testimony of the empty tomb tells us that indeed Jesus had risen. He had said that he was going to, and indeed it happened. And furthermore, you also see the testimony of the angelic messenger. Here you have this angel. He is glistening in white, and oftentimes angels appear very much like in human form, and he makes this declaration that Jesus has risen. He is not here. Very interesting. At the birth of Jesus, you have this angelic proclamation, glory to God in the highest, announcing his birth. At the resurrection of Jesus, you have the angelic announcement, he's not here, he is risen. And then you have the testimony of the eyewitnesses themselves. You see this in verses 7 and 8. This angel then says this, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You have the testimony of the eyewitnesses. This angel says, listen, I am commissioning you. I am sending you. You go and tell the disciples that he has risen and he's going to meet you in Galilee. Jesus on multiple occasions had told them, I'm going to rise from the dead. I will meet you in Galilee. And that's exactly what the angel commissions these eyewitnesses to do. The gospel at the very heart of it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 16 isn't just kind of like, well, an add-on. It's just kind of the, the final element of the story of Jesus. It is the entire apex of God's work in the world. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no validation that our sins have been paid for. Christ's death on the cross is validated by his resurrection. And if you and I are going to thrive, the resurrection of Jesus has to increasingly become more and more valuable to us. It's not just something like, yeah, know that, went to an Easter service, got it, check, he rose. The resurrection of Jesus is everything for the Christian. For me personally, the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything for me. You know how I know that I've got forgiveness for my many sins? Past, present, and even future? the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My whole sense of identity is not wrapped up in position, not in past successes or failures. It's wrapped up in the identity that Jesus is risen from the grave. I know with 100% certainty that when I die, whenever that might be, I will pass from this life into his presence by virtue of the resurrection I know that God is going to give me a body like Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that will be fit for eternity so that I will be able to be with him and to experience the splendors of his heaven, his kingdom, and his presence forever. It'll be absolutely sheer joy and delight because God's going to give me a body like Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. My sense of purpose in life is wrapped up in his resurrection. I can have 
peace, even in the midst of difficulty and the unknowns, when I focus on Jesus, talk to him, speak to him, because he is alive. I've got courage. I can take risks, significant ones. I can make significant investments. I can trust God even in the great difficulties, not because I've got the faith, but because God gives me faith in this relationship with Jesus that I share. The whole reason I've got a relationship with God is because Jesus is alive. And if you're going to thrive, seriously, as a Christian, you and I need to continue to grow in knowing the significance of the resurrection. There's a song that every once in a while just, God just kind of brings to my mind. It's like, it's an older song. Um, it's chorus. You're probably familiar with it. Uh, the Gaithers, Bill and Gloria Gaither wrote it. It's got this really powerful chorus. And sometimes, especially like, like I'm just got some real difficulty or this is not making sense, life seems pretty heavy. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you're there right now. Like all of a sudden, I just, I hear this chorus again. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. That makes all the difference. When you are facing great difficulty, you got the news from the doctor that's just like the most devastating thing that you could expect. When you're facing hardship, difficulty, depression, mental anxiety, when you've got issues in your family and you're not really even sure what end is up, because he lives, life is worth the living. Because why? Jesus is alive. He is resurrected from the grave. And so friends, I want you to know I desperately want you to thrive. And the only way that that's ever going to happen, the way it continues to happen in your life, is that you and I keep growing in knowing the significance of the resurrection. Now, here in Mark, there are a couple of other priorities that are given to us in order for us to thrive as kingdom citizens. And I'm going to point out two more, beginning in verse 9. But before I go to verses 9 through 20, as you're looking in your Bible, you're going like, wait a second here. Why are these brackets, like here at verse 9 and kind of ending in verse 20, or maybe it's like in italics, or maybe it's like in some side column, and you're like, what is going on here? I've had a number of people ask me like, what are we going to do after verse 8? What happens? Now, I want you to know, verses 1 through 8 in Mark chapter 16, absolutely authentic gospel of Mark. Mark wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when you come to verses 9 through 20, uh, this is not part of the original. So our earliest manuscripts, as well as the testimony of church history, when you look at some of the church fathers, uh, they do not have verses 9 through 20. Uh, there's folks that give their whole life to the study of textual criticism, to look at issues like this. It's believed that verses 9 through 20 
were added by a scribe sometime in the later second century, maybe even later. We're not sure, but as the gospel continued to be recorded, this passage, verses 9 through 20, they just continued to add it on. They, they knew about it. They, sometimes they would copy a gospel, they'd end at verse 8, and then they'd leave this big amount of space. They knew existed, but we do not believe it's scripture, but we do know that it covers some pretty important information. Everything that you find in verses 9 through 20 uh, has reference to other passages, passages, especially the Gospels and the book of Acts. And so even though um, I do not believe this was a part of the original Gospel of Mark, I don't actually think it's Scripture, I do think it is a scribal summary that highlights how disciples are to thrive in his kingdom. Things that were known to be very important have been carried on in tradition. And there is no doctrine that is added to or subtracted in any way by having verses 9 through 20. But I do want to highlight a couple of more traits on how to thrive as a kingdom citizen. So the first is you want to continue to grow in knowing the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. But here's a second one. You need to guard against a hard heart. What we're about to look at uh, was something that was focused on with Jesus and his disciples during his ministry. And so when you pick it up in verse 9, here you have uh, the events that are recorded in other gospels and they're summarized by the scribe. So verse 9, now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, He first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So after the resurrection, these women go, they report to the disciples. Two of them, we know James, excuse me, John and Peter, they actually run to the tomb. They examine it. Whoa, they see, whoa, the tomb is empty. The angel is no longer there. But they see all these cocoon wrappings, 100 pounds of wrappings, where the body of Jesus was. He literally had just like passed through it. And the face cloth kind of rolled up right there, set aside. But they just like couldn't make sense of this. So they go back. Mary, who was one of the women that actually uh, was addressed by the angel, who had originally reported to the disciples, the body is not there. She goes back to the tomb. She's standing there. And you read about this in John 20. She actually... Is, meets up and she thinks it's a gardener who is actually working the landscaping of all these around these tombs, but it's actually Jesus. And she doesn't know it's Jesus until this gardener, who happens to be Jesus, speaks to her. And the very first person that the resurrected Jesus appears to is Mary Magdalene. And you see that right there in verse 9. And Mary Magdalene is a fascinating woman. She had, like the text says, that seven demons had been cast out of her. Jesus had emancipated her from tremendous evil. We don't know exactly what that looked like. We just know from the the scriptures that to be demon-possessed is to live a life of horror. And God had emancipated her and freed her. And every time you find someone that has been deeply touched by Jesus significantly saved, transformed, life changed, you find tremendous devotion. People that understand, wow, 
God has rescued me and saved me. I was once dead and now I'm alive. Why, you always find tremendous devotion and that's what you find with this woman. And the very first person Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appears to is her. And so she goes, verse 10, and she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. They're mourning and weeping. They do not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Here we have this scribal summary that tells us that they were just weeping and mourning. And Mary comes and says, not only is the body not there, I have just seen Jesus. He spoke to me. You would think like, whoa! They'd be like, I I believe. But look at this. Verse 11. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. <laughs> Mary, I, I, I know that you love Jesus so much and, and you really want him to be alive, but he's not. And they refused to believe. Think of it. Jesus' apostles, his key men, the ones that he entrusted with to carry forth the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, uh -uh. they will not believe an eyewitness report from a woman they trusted and knew very well. They wouldn't have it. Well, look at this. They refused to believe it. Look at then verse 12. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. So here you have an event that's recorded in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. You have two of them. One of them that we know is his name is Cleopas. And he is making his way with another disciple. It could be his wife, we don't know, but there's another disciple. They're making their way to the village of Emmaus, okay? And so this is going to be to the west of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, processing all that they'd heard about and all the events regarding Jesus and his death and, and hearing of these women who are reporting that the tomb is empty and this angel appearing saying that he's risen, as they're walking, they encounter another traveler. And this traveler, they just think is someone else who's kind of making their way to Emmaus. And they, this traveler asks them questions about what has transpired. And they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? How Jesus, whom we had basically put our entire hope in, we thought he was the promised Messiah, why he's, he was crucified and they, they buried him. And yet, some women in our group, they, they actually uh, said that the tomb is empty and, and this angel appears that says that he's risen. And are you the only one that doesn't know about these things? And this traveler, whom they do not actually recognize, is actually Jesus Notice what the text says. It says that he came in another form. They're walking along, but he appeared to them in a different form. To Mary, he appeared initially as a gardener. But to these two, they, well, he appears to them as a traveler. And so as they're walking, 
This person that's traveling with them, Jesus, although they don't recognize him, he actually begins to tell them everything about the Messiah from the scriptures. In fact, you can read about it. Luke 24, verse 27, it says this, Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, I would have loved to have been on that walk and to hear that talk. Can you imagine Jesus explaining from the Hebrew scriptures everything that pointed to him? And they're hearing all this and they're like, whoa, whoa, and he's connecting all of the dots. And after this, when they stop and Jesus eventually breaks bread, it says that their eyes were opened and they see him for who he is. And immediately he vanishes. They had seen the risen Lord. They were like, man, our hearts were just burning inside us as he was explaining the scriptures concerning Messiah. And then we saw him. It is him. He's alive. And so they're like, we're done. We, we have got to go back. We have got to tell the other disciples. We have seen the risen Lord. And so they do. Verse 13. They went away and reported it to the others. But look at this. But they did not believe them either. They didn't believe. Here they are. I mean, here's Mary. Mary saying, I have seen the risen Jesus. These guys like, well, you know what? We saw Jesus. He was walking with us. Our, Our eyes were open. We actually saw him. And you know what? The apostles did not believe they were trying to dismiss it just like with Mary. Well, I, I know you want to believe he's alive. Maybe it's some sort of apparition. Are you sure you're not seeing things? We're all really exhausted. It was fatigue or something like that. No. He explained the entire Hebrew scriptures to us. We saw him with our own eyes, but notice this. They did not believe. We have a huge problem here, don't we? The apostles will not believe the eyewitness reports. So they're all gathered together, and it's later that very same Easter Sunday evening that verse 14 takes place. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So here they are. They're gathered together. They're referred to as the 11. We know from John's gospel in John 20 that Thomas was not with them on this Easter Sunday evening appearance. They're referred to as the 11, though, because Judas, the betrayer, had actually committed suicide. He knew that Jesus was innocent. And so here it is. Here is the scribal summary of this event where Jesus appears to them. They're having, they're reclining at the table. They're having their meal. And notice he appears. But it's not, look, I'm alive, just like I said, and you believe the witnesses. You believe the women when they came back and said, the tomb is empty. The angel had said, I have, I have risen. You believe the, the message from Mary when she said, I saw him with my own eyes. You believe the two that were making their way to Emmaus and then hightailed it back here. But that wasn't the case, was it? 
they didn't believe. And we've got ourselves a huge problem. And what did Jesus do? He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. The entire ministry, gospel, kingdom moving forward is going to be based on the apostles telling people who have not seen the risen Jesus that he is alive. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. Well, we got a huge problem here, don't we? These guys don't believe eyewitness reports. They were, should have been making their way to Galilee, just like they were told to do. But they're not. They're holed up. They're mourning, weeping, and denying, and dismissing eyewitness accounts. So Jesus, what compassion. He comes to them. He comes to his own men who are failing badly. And he reproaches them for their hardness of heart. I mean, think of all the occasions that Jesus told them, I'm going to be apprehended. In some cases, he told them, I'm going to be abused. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried. But he always told them every time that he talked of his death, of his resurrection. It's as if they just went right through their ears, just, just kind of passed through them like, to, what? I, I don't get it. Even the scriptures themselves speak of Messiah and that he is alive, always alive, seeing his offspring. But they just, they don't get it. And despite everything that Jesus told them, they manifested a hardness of heart. I want you to know that this isn't the first time Jesus has to address this issue with his disciples. As we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, have you noticed like in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, right after the feeding of the 5,000, these, these guys start demonstrating a hardness of heart and Jesus calls them on it. He actually addresses, you've got a hard heart. Do you remember after the feeding of the 4,000? You found it in Mark chapter 8, verse 17. Guess what is the biggest issue? Their heart condition. They're non-responsive. They're not believing. And here we again, Jesus has to address the hardness of heart. I mean, when you think of hardness of heart, who do you think of? I think of Pharaoh, man. That guy, hard heart. God does some pretty amazing miracles. And what does he do? He just hardens his heart. I just will not, I'm, I don't think it's a real good idea that the people of Israel leave and go worship. Not happening. Not on my watch. Not in my country. I'm the ruler here. I got a hard heart. Or hardness of heart like the Canaanites and all their wickedness. Or the people of Israel who are like stiff-necked and hard-hearted. Or the Pharisees and scribes, despite all that Jesus did. Miracles, wisdom, authenticating that indeed the Messiah, showing from the scriptures. No, we don't want him. In fact, we're looking to kill him. Hard heart. But is it possible to be a disciple of Jesus and have a hard heart? The answer, yes. When it talks of hardness of heart, it speaks of that which is dull, insensible, to cover with a thick skin like a callus, to be spiritually insensitive, to not be able to comprehend or an unwillingness to respond to biblical or scriptural truth. 
And you think like, well, hard-heartedness, that's for the lost, right? They're really hard-hearted. It can't be for us. I want you to know it can. And it is possibly the greatest epidemic in Christianity today is a hard-heartedness among those who identify as disciples of Jesus. When you have a hard heart, I mean, nothing is going to infect your soul or quench and dampen the spirit or to paralyze your hands than a hard heart. And like, I've seen this in my own life at times where you just kind of, you just get like insensitive. You, you kind of lose sight of the lost, the hurting, the poor. You, you see spiritual depravity and wickedness all around, and you just like, just, I don't even want to deal with it, right? You see brokenness, and, and you just don't want to respond anymore. You know what happens? Let me just give you some indicators of a hardening of a heart. All of a sudden, scriptural truth just doesn't mean that much to you. You, you're never in the Bible, or rarely. And even um, the times that it's preached, you're just like, I just don't really care too much about that. I'm really interested in my shopping list or whatever. Um, when you're spiritually, you've got a hardening of a heart, there's opportunities to serve, but you'll never take them. Uh, when you have a hardening of a heart, the idea of gathering in corporate worship, like coming together as the church, you guess what? You'll kind of forsake the gathering of the brethren because... That's really not important. In fact, it's getting in the way of some other things that you'd really like to accomplish on your Sunday. When you have a hard heart, um, it grips you. It changes your ability to trust and care and to receive truth. Walking and responding to the Holy Spirit, those all become secondary. And when you have a hardness of heart, guess who becomes the top priority in your life? You, yourself, not the Savior. Friends, hardness of heart, if you see it creeping up, maybe as I've actually even covered that, you're like, whoa, that's me. Maybe that's why I could kind of care less about many things spiritually. If you've got a hardness of heart, this is what I have found to be really helpful to do. First of all, call it what it is. This is a hardness of heart. This is the sort of thing that Jesus was addressing with his disciples. And I'm a disciple, and guess what? I've got some of those issues going on. Second, confess it as sin. You just tell God, listen, this completely misses the mark. And then third, ask, call out to the Lord to renew your heart, to fill you with a passion for him, a fire for him, a courage, a faith, a focus in that. Because you and I, you know what? If we're going to thrive, we've got to guard against a hard heart. If we're going to experience all that God has done for us and what he's going to do through us, Friends, we've got to have a heart that's responsive to him. Otherwise, we're just going to sit on the sidelines and we're just going through life. And Jesus wants us to thrive. I believe that's why that scribe, in his summary, covered this. You have to address the hardness of heart. If you're going to thrive, you have to guard against it. And then there's just one final priority that is listed here. And that is, if you and I are going to thrive as kingdom citizens, like the scribe, in his summary, Kurt records, we have to give ourselves to Jesus' disciple-making mission. Look at verse 15. So, 
And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Here we have, this is, this is a later event from that, that Sunday, on that Easter Sunday evening. This, I think, is, is this scribe's summary of what we find at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so you have this summary there, and it's stated that Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. I believe this is right before Jesus ascends to be with the Father, to sit at his right hand. Jesus makes this, what we refer to as the Great Commission. It's interesting that all four gospels and the book of Acts all have Jesus giving this kind of commission. And so they are going to there to preach the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Originally, it was used to describe the good news that a soldier would bring to his commander, like in battle. Like if the battle is going well and a soldier ran up to give a message of how it was going, it was good news. It was the euangelion. It was the gospel. But later it came to be understood as a good message. That's what the New Testament picks it up. Jesus even uses it. The gospel, it means good news. And if you'd like, like, well, what is a full definition of the gospel? Let me give it to you. The gospel is the good news that by grace, God forgives and redeems all who are broken over their sin, who believe in the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life as a disciple in his kingdom. If you believe by grace through faith that you are broken over your sin, you are trusting in Christ and Christ alone and his perfect life, death, and resurrection, and you are receiving the eternal life he offers all those who will believe in him because you are becoming a disciple of him, Friends, that is the glorious gospel. And that is the gospel that Jesus has commissioned us to take to the world. And Mark 16 is representing that this is our time. This is what we are to do. But he says this in verse 16. He says, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And you're like, okay, wait a second here. What is this, uh, verse 16, believed, got that, I get it. You need to believe in Christ, totally trust him, and has been baptized. Do you need to be baptized in order to truly have salvation? Nobody knows. You ever thought about that? Well, I want you to know the answer to that question is no. But you're saying, well, it says right there then, the scribal summary says, and has been baptized. That is because in the New Testament, in the early church, you always found that when someone truly believed in Jesus, there was a personal faith demonstrated and uh, placed in Christ. They demonstrated that faith by being baptized. It was a public declaration of a personal faith in Christ. And you see that. You go through the book of Acts, that's exactly what you'll find. People who will believe, as soon as they believe, guess what, what happens? They're baptized. Not like it's practiced today, like, well, if you want to get around to it, you know, that, 
That's actually not what you see in the New Testament. But you're saying, well, how do you know you don't have to be baptized? Well, notice what the text says. Look at verse 16 at the end. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. It's not that you're disbelieved and you were not baptized. It's that you just didn't believe. Do you remember when Jesus is dying on the cross and there's those two criminals and one of them has a change of heart and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise? Notice Jesus didn't say like, oh, we got one major problem. You also have to be baptized and we've got to get that figured out. No, it's always an issue of faith. But when you have saving faith, you have a desire to obey Jesus and to be baptized. And by the way, Christianity right now is presented as if to consumers on how the gospel can help you to have a better life, to be a life enhancer, to be an added feature. Wouldn't you like to have a relationship with Jesus so you could have your own little personal God, a personal relationship with God, and he'll make your life better? Right now, that is generally how the gospel is presented, but that's not how the gospel is presented in the scriptures. Christianity, faith in Christ, it's not a potential enhancer to your life. It's a eternal life and death issue. If you trust in Christ and believe, you have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, by virtue of the resurrection of Christ. But if you reject it and say, I don't want it, or I don't want Jesus on his terms, I'll have him on my terms, you need to understand you stand condemned. No one is saying that. We don't want to give bad news. We don't want to actually talk about that the wages of sin is death. But actually, if, to understand Christ and the gospel is to know that if you reject him, you stand condemned by God. You will, if you continue in this unbelief, will eventually face God's wrath for your sin. That's what makes the gospel such good news. Jesus has stood in your place. He's paid for you, but you've got to believe. You see this in John 3, 36. It says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, a life that speaks of both unending, but it also speaks eternal life, the quality of life, life with God, life from God. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Interesting, belief and obedience are used rather synonymously. If you believe Jesus, you will obey him. And why do you obey him? It's because you believe in him. But if you will not believe, you will not obey, you need to know you stand condemned. What you need is his resurrection life, to believe in him. That's what Jesus is commissioning. I want you to take my gospel because this world stands condemned until they're resting and trusting in me. And then beginning in verses 17 and 18, the scribe uh, gives a summary, in this case, of five different supernatural signs that are going to accompany the going forth of the gospel in the apostolic church. Now, these signs that are given, they are miraculous signs given to authenticate the messenger and the message. We actually see this in different points in the Bible. When God wants to, uh, to authenticate his messenger and their message, he will have like miraculous signs. So we see this with like Moses. 
and he does miraculous signs in Egypt, all of Egypt sees, but especially Pharaoh. Why does he do that? To authenticate this guy, Moses. He's been sent from God, and he's got a message from God. You see it also with prophets like Elijah and Elisha. They do these miracles to authenticate their ministry, their message, and that they are official messengers. The apostles were given the ability to do special signs to authenticate that God was giving his word through them, the church was being established through them, and that they were indeed his messengers. And so we're going to see these signs here. And so he says, verse 17, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons and they will speak with new tongues. Casting out demons, Jesus had commissioned his 12 and the 70 to do just that to be able to release people from demonic bondage and to do so in his name. It's a miracle and authenticated. These are sent ones from him. And then notice he also said, and they will cast out out demons and they will speak with new tongues. They will speak in intelligible, known, foreign languages. When you look at the Bible, when it talks about speaking in tongues, it's not talking about some sort of like language that has never been heard. It's some sort of heavenly language. It makes sense to no one. Actually, these are known languages that can be understood. So the first time this happened, does anybody remember where that happened? Acts chapter 2. What takes place? These that had been gathered in prayer, they received the Holy Spirit, and they are in a public fashion, they're on the temple, they begin speaking in tongues, known languages. How do you like, well, how do you know they are known languages? Because remember all the people that are gathered that were watching this? They're like, wait a second. Whoa. They are speaking in my native language because the people of the world had come to Jerusalem and they're like, wait a second. How do they know my language? It was a miraculous sign. And then Peter gets up and he stands up and he tells them exactly what's going on. And he preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they will be able to, and you see this in the early church. You see it also in the book of 1 Corinthians, like chapters 12 and 14, that God gave the ability to speak a known foreign language when they previously didn't have that ability. It was a sign that he was at work. These are his, this is his message. These are his messengers. But then notice verse 18. They will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Okay, what in the world is going on here? So it says they will pick up snakes or serpents, right? If they drink any deadly poison, it's not going to hurt them. Now, In the book of Acts, you've got a situation where uh, a viper, a snake, kind of like gets on Paul's arm. He kind of, Paul shakes it off in the fire. They expect he's going to die, and he doesn't. We don't have any record of anybody drinking poison. And these were like, apparently like during persecution. If you were ever to be forced into a situation where they made you handle a serpent that would kill you, like a snake, or to drink some sort of poison, God says, one of those authenticating miracles is that they're not going to die. It will not hurt them. Now, you're like, whoa, that's fascinating. You know, like, wow, should we actually maybe just get some snakes out here and to show off our faith, right? 
Well, I want you to really think about this because I, I want you to know there are never times where we're to put our faith off, put, put our faith on display, to show off. God may put us in situations where we need to trust him, but we are never to just voluntarily drink poison or handle snakes to show off our faith. In fact, this is to play right into the suggestion that Satan gave Jesus during his temptation. Remember that? Remember during the temptation of Jesus, Satan had Jesus like stand on the pinnacle of the temple and says, listen, why don't you take yourself and throw yourself down off the high point of the temple and so everybody can see how God, the Father, is going to care for you. Why don't you put your faith on display? You remember how Jesus responded to that? Mark 4, Matthew 4, verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Warren Wiersbe puts it well. He said, Jesus refused to tempt God, and we should follow his example. Yes, God cares for his children when, in his will, they are in dangerous places, but he is not obligated to care for us when we foolishly get out of his will. We are called to live by faith, not by chance, and to trust God, not tempt him. And yet, guess what? While we've had folks in history decide, you know what? I think it is time to tempt God, to show off our faith, to add a little spice to our sermons. So in 1910, a guy by the name of George Went Hensley read Mark 16, 18, and he introduced snake handling to churches throughout the Appalachian region. In fact, there he is. How about that? You know, like, doesn't, that's going to bring a lot of life to a sermon. Watch me as I handle these snakes, right? And this is a practice that has kind of continued. Uh, like, for instance, October 3rd, 1998, uh, there was a snake handling evangelist by the name of John Wayne Brown Jr. Uh, he had been bitten by his own snakes 22 different times. On this particular night, he brought one of, one of his own timber rattlesnakes, lo and behold, bit him while he was giving his sermon up on stage at a worship service at the Rock House Holiness Church. Well, after he got bit, you know, he kept preaching for about a minute later, and then all of a sudden he just passed out right there on the stage. The people gathered around him. They started praying. Someone got an electric fan trying to cool him off, and he died, and it was a tragedy. It didn't need to happen. And furthermore, when he died, he left five orphan children. That's because his wife, Melinda, had died from a snake bite during a revival that he had led just a few years earlier in 1995. When all this transpired, one pastor who was on stage with Brown, who died of a snake bite, on the night of his death said, you know, he didn't think that the tragedy would phase the church members and asserted that the church would not change its practices. Friends, that's just downright foolishness. If God puts you in a situation of great danger, we will trust him. But we're not going to put ourselves in situations like handling snakes or drinking poison just to show off. And then he also then mentions this, that um, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And we see this like in the books of, book of Acts, also in like 1 Corinthians. The apostles had the ability to heal. Why? Not to show off their faith, but to demonstrate that they were sent by God and this is a message from God. And Jesus says, you need to know all these things. So in verse 19 and 20, it says, So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that 
follow. This is just a summary. Interesting, this point that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus mentioned this in Mark chapter 12. Do you remember also when Jesus is on trial in front of the the Jewish leadership? He tells them that one day you will see me seated at the right hand of the Father. And Peter, when he preaches his message that very first Sunday, that first first day of Pentecost, you know what he, he speaks of? That Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it's rather fascinating. When Stephen, the very first martyr for the Christian faith, when they're throwing stones at him because he will not deny the resurrected Jesus, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and he yells it out that he sees him. He's right there at the right hand. And so they went forth. They went forth with the disciple-making mission. Discipleship, just to give you a very simple definition, is this. It is the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. And friends, if you're going to thrive as a kingdom citizen, you need to give yourself to this disciple-making mission. You're going to give yourself to something. Jesus invites us. Give yourself to me and my kingdom priorities. You see, the gospel of Mark is meant to cultivate a deep love in us. And living in the love of Christ keeps us thriving in his kingdom. So I just want to ask, are you, are you thriving in his kingdom? Well, you can answer that question by just thinking about, am I living in his priorities? Do I, uh, when I look at my, my head, do I really believe in the resurrection and am I growing? When I look at my heart, is there a hardness of heart? And when I look at my hands, am I moving forward with his mission? Friends, living in the love of Christ keeps us, it keeps us thriving in his kingdom. So let the gospel of Mark leave its mark on you. Let's pray. Lord.